It's like whenever we start talking, I just I all I have are cliches inside of me. Yeah, sure. Does that make sense? I just have sitting directly beneath the surface always is a cliche that just wants to be heard. And if I'm not thinking, that's my resting state. Cliche face. Cliche, yeah, uh, RCF. That or like mixing metaphors all day. Yeah. A stitch in time is worth two in the bush. Yes. You scream. You scream on a on a street corner. Or a bus. Or a bus before they ask you kindly to leave. Mm. Probably. Yeah. Journos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Stephen, you know how when you hear bad news mm-hmm. about anything, your response or one's response is... I'm just going to go live on a desert island somewhere and forget about all this. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, I think that's a reasonable response to, you know, a lot of life's problems. Yeah, well, now there's a series of stories out that basically has taken the bad news to the desert island. Ugh. Yeah, stories out now about this island that's off the coast of Brazil about three or four days by boat. A Brazilian geologist by the name of Fernanda Avelar Santos was studying the rocks on the island, right? It's this distant little island called Trindade Island. Fairly unspoiled. A lot of turtles live there. Mm. Extremely mellow. Okay. She's there in 2019 researching a doctoral thesis, and she discovers these strange blue-green rocks. Doesn't know what they are. They're kind of littered all over the island, washing up with the tides. It's very strange. She's a geologist, Stephen, so Mm -hmm. luckily she knows what to do. She picks them up, takes them back to her lab in Brazil, and examines them, finds out that they are plastic rocks. Huh. Well, that's certainly not chill. No, it's not chill. I like how you describe the island as chill, though. Just like untouched little piece of wilderness. I mean, that's what, when I think of, yeah, when I think of a place that's chill, I'm thinking the species there must be a turtle, and I dare you to think of a more chill animal than a turtle. How did the turtles get there? I guess I took a boat like everybody else did. I don't know. They're there. The important thing is that they're there and that this distant island that has heretofore been thought of as unspoiled now has not empty soda bottles and like creepy dolls with the eyes flapping open and closed in the tide, but an actual (laughs) kind of rock made out of the plastic that has been in the ocean for such a long time that it has sort of taken on a new form and it is this... Now this kind of sedimentary plastic rock. God damn it. Yeah, exactly. This is why we can't have, not not even nice things. This is why we just shouldn't be able to have things. Yeah, so Santos is calling this a new kind of geological formation where, from an article, it's merging the materials and processes the earth has used to form rocks for billions of years with a new ingredient, which is plastic trash. So the earth has incorporated the abundance of plastic and now is turning it into... uh, Rocks, turning like, them into rocks. What, what do you mean by that? Like, what makes these plastic objects rocks and not just pieces of plastic? Eh, because they have undergone a process that you could call geological. Here's Santos talking to Forbes. She said, quote, We identified the debris mainly coming from fishing nets, which is very common debris on Trinidad Island's beaches. The nets are dragged by the marine currents and accumulate on the beach. When the temperature rises, this plastic melts and becomes embedded with the beach's natural material. What, what, what is that, an igneous sedimentary? Come on, let's do some geology 101. 
Ah, it's a new thing altogether that they call plastiglomerates. Hi-oh. Yep, yeah. First found in 2014 on the big island of Hawaii. Ooh. Yeah. So it's heat plus plastic equals, this sucks. Heat plus plastic plus nature stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nature stuff. You know, the blanket term. Nature stuff, yeah. Nature stuff. And so this is a kind of story that we're very familiar with. This is the way in which we are despoiling nature. Our overabundance of stuff is coming back to haunt us in all these new and strange ways and is showing up in unexpected places. Mm -hmm. This story is about it being on a chill turtle hangout off the coast of Brazil. Other stories are, you know, soda bottle found on the bottom of the ocean where there's no light in Antarctic snow, these kinds of things. Yeah. It's all part of the conversation of us as the drivers of what's called the Anthropocene, which is this geological era in which we're actually controlling, or if not controlling directly, sort of drunk driving (laughs) the processes that make uh, nature work. And that's obviously very scary. Yeah. I mean, when they look through this sort of layer of the geological record, they're just going to be like those freaking assholes. Yeah. yeah. Those those freaking assholes. It's going to be like the equivalent of like having a nice neighborhood, right? And like the houses are all nice, but it's near a college. And so you have this one like beautiful Victorian, but there's plastic furniture and like a dirty floor with just a beer pong table. Old couch with busted springs and just looks kind of always sticky that's out on the front lawn for some reason. A keg and a plastic tub in the living room. Yeah. The earth is the frat house of the solar system. Well, well, really, the Anthropocene is the frat house of the geologic record, but the Earth itself... The Anthropocene is the frat party weekend of the geological record. The Earth is now the fraternity row of the solar system. Well, no, I don't want to get hung up here. It's really because the rest of the solar system is, by all measures, pretty chill, like your turtle island. Right. May we have the non-sporting group in the ring, please? It's like the Earth itself is the frat house on the otherwise quiet street that is our solar system. The universe is a cul-de-sac, okay? The universe is a cul-de-sac. Now we're fucking getting somewhere. (laughs) And what it is is that there is a couch, and the couch is this island. Okay. And the turtles... Yeah. No, let me start over. Okay. And of course, this group has so many sizes and shapes and backgrounds. It's really interesting, interesting group. See, and this is why I'm saying that Saturn, Saturn is no, no. Saturn is the leave Saturn out of this. We've already established this. That's what I'm saying is that can hear the noise because it's so far away from Earth. It doesn't matter. This this can change their mind because she really wants to see their reach and drive and their carriage going around the ring. And that's what we're really looking for. We don't worry if they break their gate or something like that, but we want to see their overall outline and profile. Thank you. They're the people who call the cops, even though they're like three houses down. Right. Does that make sense? So what does Haley's Comet have to do with it? Haley's Comet is the drug dealer. Stephen, let's talk about what we really want to talk about today. (laughs) Dogs. Woo! We love dogs. We really do. There's news about the way we're destroying the natural environment. That's going on all the time. Yeah. And there's also another breed of story that is running simultaneously all the time as sort of the background radiation of our universe of media. And that is 
Stories about dogs. Well, Stephen, we got ourselves a big bang of a dog story. Came out right around the same time as the crappy plastic rock story. This one, big news in the world of the great genetic engineering program that is popular dog breeding. Yeah. Stephen, you know what it is. Uh, Yeah, you're right. This is breaking white hot news that per the American Kennel Club, for the first time- the AKC? The AKC, my man. Sure. Per the American Kennel Club, for the first time in 31 years, we have a new number one most popular dog in America. Oh, monkeys. Tell me what it is. So after the Labrador Retriever's 31-year reign dominating the charts of uh, of most popular dog, we do have a new winner, and that is the French Bulldog. French Bulldog. A.K.A. the Frenchie. The Frenchie, yeah. Yeah. Finally tonight, America has a new top dog, but as Sam Brock reports, it's also unleashing a debate. To wear the crown of most popular canine, it's really a dog-eat-dog competition. But apparently America has spoken, and the answer is the French Bulldog. Once again, let's bring in our top dog. Where is Fr- Where Winston? Where is Winston, the French, the French Bulldog? <laughs> there he is, there he he has a lot of energy this morning, and these French Bulldogs are pretty adaptable to a lot of different environments. Absolutely right. So they have a nice short so coat. They are just, they have really, really great personalities, and I just feel like anybody who meets one kind of wants to pet them and falls in love with them pretty quickly. Oh, I mean, just a snuggle bug going on right <laughs> here. Now, so you- Yeah, the, the French Bulldogs, they're on top, uh, but still the Labrador Retrievers, they are still number two, number three, Golden Retrievers, number four, mm-hmm. German Shepherd Dogs, and number five poodles not only is it america's number one the akc actually breaks it down by cities and sure enough most popular dog breeds in all of these different cities are the french bulldog atlanta georgia boston massachusetts Mm. chicago illinois columbus ohio dallas texas denver colorado golden retrievers Uh what about la Mm -hmm. gotta be the frenchie french bulldog okay houston texas frenchie detroit michigan french bulldog okay feel like D- Detroit would be like a badger. Yeah, you would hope it'd be something a little uh, a little more rough and tumble. But no, it's Frenchies all the way down, Stephen. I'm sorry to tell okay. you. There are still some outposts of Retriever, like St. Louis has the lab. Mm-hmm. Seattle's got the golden. But it seems like the shift is becoming yeah. fairly complete. The writing is on the wall, and that writing says French freaking bulldog. Yeah, none of that is surprising. Yeah. Is it disappointing I mean, I think we need to get this out of the way. If we're going to be a news show in mm-hmm. which we work toward transparency at all time, yeah. this is a pretty good time to at least put our cards on the table vis-a-vis our feelings about the dog in question. So being a coward, I'm going to let you go first. Stephen, what do you think about the French Bulldog? I don't know. To be fully transparent, I neither love nor hate them. I mean, I think they're dogs, right? Like, I, I'm a dog lover in general. I don't think a overly purebred slash inbred dog like a French bulldog asked to be that way. So if, if there's anything that I would dislike, it would be actually the culture of owners around a particular dog. The dog itself is innocent, in my opinion. I have this dog. I have like a rescue 
dog that I found on the street in San Francisco, right? And then nursed him back to health, and he's still my bud like 13 years later. But I'm also not like, oh, if you don't have a rescue, you are like this terrible person. I mean, I think for different reasons, it's nice to get a rescue. But it's kind of weird when people are like, oh, I hate that dog. Yeah, yeah. My opinion on Yeah, go on. What what do you think? Oh, you were saying just now you you hate them. You want to round them all up, right? No, no. Oh, I remember you saying that. No. Um, (laughs) My take is this, that having a French bulldog or similar is kind of like having a vintage Volkswagen Beetle, Mm. right? Like it's a particular kind of car for a particular kind of taste. Because of the nature of the car, it requires a lot more maintenance than the average new car would. Sure. It's going to make a lot of noise. It's going to offer some unique smells, perhaps. It may break down more often than uh, the average car. And if you know that going into it, then you're probably in good shape. But one might also reasonably ask, "Eh, maybe just get a car that is going to work a little better. That's my general take on the French Bulldog and other kinds of what are called brachycephalic dogs, meaning dogs with the smashed faces. I think the analogy of the vintage Volkswagen Beetle is an interesting one because thank you. You know, it's well, you're, you're, well, you might not like the second part because uh, there's something about you know buying a vintage car knowing it comes with a bunch of problems. But the problems of a vintage car weren't really like genetically bred into that car against its will, right? There is an element to overbreeding and inbreeding that results in these genetically passed down health problems. Yeah, let's talk about some of those things in the gentlest way possible. Okay. This all stems from the fact that these are what's called brachycephalic dogs, meaning they have short faces. It's the French bulldogs, the English bulldogs, the pugs. And basically, a lot of their problems are around breathing, right? They have these short air passages, means they can't breathe as well. Consequently, they overheat because they can't cool themselves. The folds of their skin also can get skin infections. Mm. And maybe the weirdest thing is that they're so inbred to have these particular kinds of heads that the purebreds, bulldogs and Frenchies both, have to be born by a cesarean. Oh, wow. Because their heads are too big, Stephen. Ah. In fact, here's Dr. Eric Olstad, a veterinarian and assistant professor at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. He's talking about bulldogs, but he says they really can't give natural birth anymore. But the monetary incentive for these breeders is so high that they can justify these added costs. And that holds true for French bulldogs as well. These are expensive dogs. The process of bringing them into the world is costly. So those costs get passed on to you, the buyer. Mm-hmm. So... It's a larger question about whether or not there should be certain bans on breeding animals. But again, I guess I go back to my initial opinion on this is that there's nothing wrong with the dog itself. It has to do with the owner and the way that they treat their animal. Well, I think you're getting at something really interesting, which is there's a difference between the individual dog, the individual owner, this creature that's going to have a life with this one family versus the system that produces yeah, it. In the same totally. way that there's conflicts for ethical people about like eating chicken when you know that the way a chicken comes into the world is horrible and the way it's treated in factory farming and so on. And we're kind of stepping into the middle of that river, right? We're yeah. We're in a place where whether you eat the chicken or not, that one thing is not going to make any difference. You know, somebody raising a dog, they're taking on those costs. They're being a good pet owner. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily solve the problems. And at the population level, 
the problems are pretty dire. In fact, there was a 2016 study in canine genetics and epidemiology that said basically the bulldog subspecies is past the point of no return. Its genetic variability is now so low that no amount of recombination is going to pull it out of this kind of death spiral that it's in Whoa. as far as a breed. So does it's that mean trouble. that it eventually goes extinct because there's no variation left in the breeding options? Yeah, I think it means that all of the qualities that you would now breed into it would only get worse and worse. You'd Whoa. only have accelerating health and physiological issues. So I know we would, we want to get into a lot of other things here, but like, should the rule be no breeders whatsoever? Or is there an ethical imperative to only encourage mutts and other mixed breed dogs to make love with one another? <laughs> you and your making love gets me every time. Yeah, I know. But like, yeah. so where do we land on this? Well, there is a lot of controversy in the breeding world. On yeah. the one hand, you have professional breeders who have to dance carefully around the idea of saying that it's a good idea to breed these very expensive bulldogs. That's their livelihood. So, yeah. of course, they're going to try and figure out what the best way to phrase that is and what the best way to breed these mm -hmm. dogs is so that they minimize all of these health concerns. Whether that's possible in the long run or not is is kind of an open question. Now, is there anything specific, let's say, that, that a person needs to know before they decide to get a French Bulldog to take home with them? I would say absolutely. Um, definitely do your research and when you are searching for a breeder or adoptions, you know, either way you go, you definitely want to make sure you stay away from getting targeted on scams, stuff like that. Um, also, you know, you want to look into health with French Bulldogs. They do come with some maintenance since they are a designer breed, but, you know, besides that, they will be your <laughs> companion and very loving for life. Uh -huh. But then on the other hand, you have these big sweeping gestures like what Norway did in 2022. Yeah. In February 2022, the country of Norway, Stephen, passed a breeding ban on British Bulldogs hmm. and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, which the uh, Cavalier King Charles is a whole other thing. But one of its health problems is that it gets like a swelling at the base of its skull where its spinal cord connects. Uh, they've got a lot of problems too, a lot of the same reasons. But Norway says... Look, the breeding of these dogs is inhumane. They have all these health problems as a result. The Oslo District Court said breeding these dogs contravenes Norway's Animal Welfare Act. Mm -hmm. This was a huge deal when it happened, and it set off all of this kind of soul-searching about should we be doing this breeding or not. An activist group in Australia that same year pushed for a ban on breeding of French bulldogs and pugs. And so the conversation has been kind of rolling around for the last year. But what I think is going on, Stephen, is uh -oh. something much more insidious. Uh-oh. Yeah. Because, see, if you look at the AKC's list of most popular dogs in the year 2022, you know what's at the bottom of that list? What? The Norwegian Lundahund. Got to follow the money, man. Yeah. And it's at the bottom of that list. It's an adorable little dog. Stephen's got a little terrier face yeah. and a little terrier body. Looking at him right now. Stephen, it was bred to hunt. Puffin. Now, that's not the cutest darn thing I've ever heard. It's pretty cute. Yeah. It's pretty cute. And then that was banned because you can't hunt. Do you eat puffin? the puffin? Or is it just like a, like, like a taxidermy play? Well, this is actually an interesting question because it shows just how specific the traits you can call out through breeding programs are. The Norwegian Lundhund mm -hmm. or... Puffin dog. Well, you know how like terriers, they're called ratters? Yeah. You know what this would be? 
a puffiner. A puffiner. <laughs> it would be a puffiner, yeah. Yeah. So this dog was bred with a number of qualities. One, that it has six toes per foot. How can you not love that? Oh. And an adaptation, this is according to Wikipedia, to climb narrow cliff paths so that it could find puffin nests and consequently their eggs. This dog is just dripping with character, oozing with panache. That's right. Unfortunately, Stephen, puffins are, of course, a protected species. Uh, so now it's just considered a little pal. All I'm saying, Stephen, yeah. all I'm saying about that is this is a dog that nearly went extinct in 1960 because it didn't have much to do. I think Norway is trying to juice the game a little bit, trying to get the Norwegian Lundehund mm. up in the rankings. That's all I'm saying. You know, I think there's a lot of meat to this story, and I think it's worth chasing it down a little bit more. Maybe it went extinct from depression. You know, maybe it maybe it went extinct because it didn't. It, it no longer had a purpose. There's a lot of cliffs around. The Norwegians are known for their existential quandaries. And <laughs> maybe this is one of them. So the Norway story is good though because it embodies the concerns that many people have around the world about breeding, right? And it is important to note that it is an official conversation happening in certain parts of the world. Now, to go back a little bit, you mentioned that breeders themselves are doing this kind of delicate dance around the work they do to dodge any potential accusations that what they are doing is inhumane, right? I'll tell you what, the AKC is certainly coming to the aid of these breeders who may be finding themselves explaining this moral conundrum. They do a ton of events on their website. They have a ton of content about the history of these dogs and in sort of their demeanors. And it really gets super in the weeds on the different sorts of breeds of dogs. And I pulled up an article that is the history of the French Bulldog. And just from the language, you can tell how they truly believe they are doing God's work by supporting the breeding of specific types of dogs. Quote, If civilization is the intersection of a group of people with their environment, so too are their dogs. With coats that evolve to survive the local climate, body styles developed to navigate native terrains, and characters that fit into the social mores of the day, our purebred dogs are living, breathing moments of history, reflections of the far-flung cultures that developed and nurtured them. Through them, we rediscover our globe's cultural diversity and heritage. And that's like the founding document of a nation, presumably of dogs. <laughs> it reads like a uh, like a Burberry catalog or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want that. I want to wear that. But that's the type of flowery copy that is associated with luxury items. So again, that's where the AKC is coming from. This sort of ridiculous language aside, the history of the French bulldog is actually quite fascinating. Yeah. I think if you think about a dog's appearance matching its purpose, let's just say some dogs make more sense than others, right? Mm -hmm. Like a Labrador has this kind of thick, glossy coat, sort of looks like an otter and swims and knows how to pay attention to people. And a German Shepherd knows how to drive Volkswagens, whatever it is. I don't know. They all have a purpose. But the French Bulldog comes from the weirdest place. I mean, it comes from being a bulldog, but where the bulldog comes from is, as the name suggests, in the early part of the 19th century, this critter that was bred to fight bulls. Yeah. I mean, they call it bull baiting, 
And that means you put a bull in a ring with a dog, and then the dog grabs onto the nose of the bull and hangs on as long as he can. So that's what they bred this dog for initially. And in fact, if you look at pictures of bulldogs from even 100 years ago, you see that they look pretty different than they do now. Yeah. A lot of the features that we've really leaned into, the smushed face, the wrinkles, all that stuff is way more pronounced. The earlier version of a bulldog looks more like something that you would want to fight a bull for whatever reason you'd want to fight a bull. And speaking to sort of the inhumane element of breeding and the history of how humans have kept dogs in some cases, bull baiting was outlawed in the 1900s in England. And you know you had to be really freaking bad to be outlawed in the 1900s, right? And so you like <laughs> yeah. you had to really yeah. be doing something that yeah. was against you know God and nature. Yeah. So you have these dogs that now mm, don't have any bulls to fight. So mm-hmm. I guess what happens is people like the dogs, but there's too much dog. So they proceed to breed them to be smaller and smaller. And this is around the time in the Industrial Revolution. So they created what was called in England the toy bulldog. And this is very, I mean, you have to admit, this is very weird. In the early 1800s, you have the Industrial Revolution getting in full swing. Mm -hmm. There's a guy named Ned Ludd in Nottinghamshire. He doesn't like all the machines, so he leads a revolt. This is all, again, coming straight from the American Kennel Club. He leads this revolt. Angry textile workers take sledgehammers, and they destroy these machines. Folks, I promise you we're getting back to the dogs. But if you've ever heard the term Luddite in reference to someone who's afraid of technology or is averse to adopting new technology, well, look no further than Ned Ludd of the Sherwood Forest. Yeah. But so you have Nottingham. After all that passes, there's all of this factory work that's being done there. And these women who work in these factories to make lace. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, the toy bulldog becomes very popular with this particular cohort of women who are lace workers. They become sort of lap dogs for these lace workers. And so the bulldog in its early iterations is weirdly associated with the Industrial Revolution as this kind of companion to these labor conditions sitting on the lap, maybe just absorbing fleas. Mm. Next thing that happens, Stephen, we got to cross that English Channel. So somebody gets a wild hair and smuggles these toy bulldogs across the English Channel to the swinging neighborhood of Montmartre. Wow, that's uh, good. Thank you. Where these dogs become popular in the brothels. Ah. So much so that Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec actually draws them in the company of madams. They became lap dogs for prostitutes and the madams. And so they have this weird historical place. The French bulldog has arrived on the scene as a companion for sex workers. And then from there, there's some other stuff where it goes to Russia and it belongs to the Tsar's family and it's part of the Russian Revolution. And one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, it's 2023. The Frenchie is number one on the AKC charts. Yeah. And here we are. It makes sense that they are now the number one dog in America because they're kind of being marketed to the American public as the dog to have, right? They're constantly in the media. They're constantly being trotted around town by celebrities. In some ways, they seem to match the modern lifestyle, right? They're kind of compact. You can fly with them. You can travel with them. You know, they kind of fit where it seems as though mo- the modern human is at. And on again, on top of that, they are just getting so many free ad dollars, you know, across all of social media and the media at large. But again, for me, the question becomes, why do people 
want to have this specific dog. There's gotta be people who just love the disposition of these dogs, the degree of maintenance required fits their lifestyle. But of course, there are certainly people who are getting the dog as part of this like greater image they're cultivating for themselves. We all remember back in the Paris Hilton days of the early to mid aughts, there was a huge run on chihuahuas suddenly because it was her companion of choice. And then there was a huge overflow of chihuahuas in the dog shelters as a result of that, because people were getting these dogs as more of a component of their image, not because they truly wanted to care for an animal. I think the same thing happened with Jack Russell's and the show Frasier and also maybe that movie, The Artist. I feel uh, like there was a similar surge of like, we all want these dogs. And yeah. then you get them and you're like, these dogs are extremely difficult and high yeah. energy. And then they get flipped. And it comes back down to the human who is choosing to be the caretaker of these animals who had no choice as to the way in which they came into the world. Yeah. And maybe that's also because dogs and humans have evolved around one another since kind of the beginning of humans themselves. Yeah. Now, see, that, Stephen, is a very interesting point. We have been engineering these dogs with all of these traits that we've been talking about, hunting and lap sitting and swimming and all the different things for a long time. Mm -hmm. A really, really long time. Like, like, like around the campfire caveman saber tooth tiger time. Oh, for sure. Like 33,000 years ago. There was a study that came out by Ann Burroughs, who's a professor at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. She says in a CNN article in April 2022, quote, throughout the domestication process, humans may have bred dogs selectively based on facial expressions that were similar to their own. Turns out there's a couple of things that we bred into the faces of all of these domestic dogs that make us like them more. One is that they have what's called fast twitch mm. facial muscles, okay. as opposed to slower twitch, which just makes their faces... More like reactive yeah. and emotive. Yeah, exactly. More responsive like human eyes. Burroughs says it allows dogs to more closely mimic our expressions. Also more developed muscles for eyebrow raising, you mm -hmm. know, so the dogs can, I guess, look surprised. We like the eyebrow yeah. effect that dogs raise their eyebrows. And muscles at the edges of the eyes so that when dogs look a certain way, it looks like they're smiling with their eyes. Oh. You see studies like this that say we're definitely developing dogs that are more responsive to humans. And I think the French Bulldog is the ultimate extrapolation of that. And I'm not the only one. Back when the Norwegians dropped their breeding ban in February of 2022, this British TV vet named Dr. Scott Miller went on a British Today talk show and was talking about how the Norwegian ban might affect French bulldogs and pugs. But the thing that he said that really stuck with me was he said the dogs had been bred to appear this way because people are, quote, trying to make dogs look like humans. A lot of people like them. And the reason people do is that we relate to animals that look like us, which is very simplistic. We like pandas. We like koalas. Anything with a flat face and mm. big eyes. Now, Stephen, you read that and you think, this is the craziest end result for dogs. Yeah. You actually want a dog with a human face. It's also funny just to think about the tens of thousands of years of evolution that took the lone majestic gray wolf roaming the forest and really, you know, kind of ruling his own kingdom. And now the end result of that is a pug in a basket or something. That's right. 
Yeah, it's crazy that this was the end result because, you know, humans and dogs evolved in this super mutually beneficial way, too. They were all kind of working together. Now, one has to wonder beyond, of course, there's emotional support and companionship, but and unless you're hunting with the dog, like it's funny to think about now how mutually beneficial the dog-human relationship is. And also just the weird psychotic nature of the modern human that it's like, we want this non-human animal to look like the most beautiful human we got. Like, and, and, where, and where we landed was a pug. And where we landed is a pug. Maybe it's sort of like those dinosaurs, like the Archaeopteryx, right? Where it wasn't quite a dinosaur and it wasn't quite a bird. Mm. And so it's this weird looking gawky feathered thing. It was on the way to becoming a bird. So maybe the pug is just the midpoint between a gray wolf and some future dog that has the face of Kate Blanchett or something. Like, <laughs> that's the perfection of the process. They're like a French bulldog body, but like the face of Brad Pitt. Yeah, I mean, you kind of want to see it. But that's not the point. The point is to think about how really significant this shift is that the Labrador Retriever was bumped from its 31-year perch, yeah. and now the French bulldog has taken over. The Labrador is a great dog. It's a familiar dog, but it looks like a dog. The French Bulldog, by all accounts, is a dog that's being made to look more like a person. And we can extrapolate some things from that about what that means. I mean, there is a psychological phenomenon in which we are more drawn to things or people that look like us. There was a study in 2018 that talked about this psychological effect, and there were a number of markers that it identified. One phenomenon, which they call the certainty of being liked, which is, you know, if someone looks like us, they're more likely to like us, or at least so we think. So the idea is like, if we make a dog look like us, it's more likely that it's going to like us and mm -hmm. we'll, feel, we'll feel good about ourselves. So it's like, hey, you're a dog with a human face. I'm a human with a human face. Who wants to go to the bar? Yeah. That just makes a lot of sense. I wonder if this also has to do with breeding these smaller and smaller dogs, too, so that we feel less threatened. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think the idea that the dog is a companion that we can take everywhere, that yeah. we integrate into our lives as completely as we integrate uh, iPhone. You know, it's just an extension of that stuff. Yeah. So if we engineer everything to be like us, it'll make us feel positively about everything. So rather than, you know, appreciating what's different about the world, we're getting to a place where we'd rather warp the world to resemble us, to make us feel better about ourselves. So kind of what you're saying is that dogs are this key component to our own human social network. Yeah, dogs are a social network. Okay. There's another study that came out in 2017 called Social Capital and Pet Ownership, A Tale of Four Cities, that actually looked at the relationship of social capital and dog ownership. And the study defines social capital as, quote, connections among individuals, social networks, and the norms of reciprocity and trustworthiness that arise from them. Simply put, social capital has been described as the, quote, glue that holds society together. So they wanted to look at the relationship of social capital and dog ownership, and they found that owning a dog actually upped the social capital of an individual in a community. There's a lot of reasons for that, some of which just have to do with the fact that they force people outside, walking on the sidewalks with their dogs, meeting their neighbors, etc. right? Um, and surveilling them. They make a point of like, when you're out there <laughs> meeting people, you also can pay attention to what other people are doing for better or worse. And so there's this like, 
this social equalization of presenting what's normal and what's not and, and hashing those things out in the public space. Yeah, it really defined and quantified the benefit of having a dog in our modern society, right? I really, I thought it was cool. Yeah, it sort of inverts this original idea you're presenting, where once upon a time, the fire was the social network that brought us all together, and then the dogs just came around. Now it's been inverted, where the dogs are the hub of the social network that connects us to each other. Yeah, totally and, true. And I was really into this study, until uh -oh. I myself stumbled across a bit of a conspiracy theory. Uh oh, two conspiracies per episode. Well. You know how if you're doing research, you got to get funding from somewhere, right? Yeah. Well, I did a little bit of digging and I found that this research was in fact funded by a grant from the Waltham Center for Pet Nutrition. Sure. Which is a subsidiary of Mars Pet Care. <gasps> and you may recognize some of the brands within the Mars Pet Care family. They include Pedigree and whiskas. So even the cats are involved in this. I mean, I guess that makes sense. On the one hand, that's a company that's going to be interested in how dogs affect people. So it's important to say that that doesn't invalidate the results, but it does go back to this idea of a lot of interested parties who are trying to move society around this way or that so that their financial interests can be preserved and modified. I mean, the AKC's got a stake in the game. All the pet breeders have a stake in the game. Big dog food has a stake in the game. I mean, you're telling me that the Mars Corporation isn't trying to make sure that people keep getting these dogs so they can keep selling the dog food. Yeah. I think it's tricky. I think as much as we love these animals, as much as we have had them with us for 30,000 plus years in yeah. one form or another, eh, it might be a money game at a certain point. But it also, I think, Stephen, is a weirder and deeper game about how we control nature and how we engineer nature mm -hmm. to give us what we want. And we may not always know what we want. And what we want may not always be good for the environment in which we're building it. But nevertheless, we want that thing. And as our desires iterate over time, the form of the thing changes too. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know what we're going to get. We, as a modern society, demanded plastic material. And we ended up getting plastic rocks on this chill little island full of turtles off the coast of Brazil. And so when you look at something like the French Bulldog, it really is this kind of reflection of all of these economic and cultural forces, which is not surprising. But it also hides this sense of wanting to dominate our environment totally. Mm -hmm. So the little French Bulldog's ascendance to the top of the heap really is a big message about how we own the world. And so I think... What we should really be thinking about is not that the French Bulldog is the number one most popular dog in America, but is actually the official dog of the Anthropocene. I'll tell you what, I love that, but it makes me hate myself. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're all sort of involved in that process in one way or another. And so the thing that's important is just to, to figure out how these pieces fit together and not to be freaked out by it so much. And to love it, Stephen, and to love it. So I don't know, uh, feed and water, I guess. I don't know, man. I'm going to go find that island. Be chill. Be chill, Stephen. Be chill. Stephen, this has been Jonos. I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I'm Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. And remember, drop us a line. 
We're at journos at journos.net.